Second Peter chapter 2, if you'll find your way there, and then stand with me um, as you find that. We'll read the first few verses there in Second Peter chapter 2. As a caveat, um, I would remind you as we approach Second Peter that Peter had a very unique perspective on faith. Um, Peter, as he discloses in chapter 1, is about to give his life for the faith. So he's about to die as a martyr. The Lord has revealed that to him. He mentioned that to him years earlier, and now the fulfillment of that prophecy and that promise is about to come to pass. Peter knows that. So he is writing through this filter of a man who loves God, of a man who's intent on staying faithful to God all the way to death. And so he is writing from that perspective. And so if it feels intense, it's because it is. And he is encouraging and exhorting those that would listen to this letter to live with the same level of fervor and intensity and passion that he himself is living with. And he's doing it by example. And so as we approach these verses, that really is the context of him writing these. So I want to start, go back to verse 1 of chapter 2 as we read today. Chapter 2 is, is, is one continuing thought. And this is, this is uh, today part 2 of, of, of a four, perhaps four-part series through chapter 2. But it's really one big idea. And so as we read, we're always going to be pointing back to these first three verses that we preached through last Sunday because they really help us to understand the context of what Peter is saying. And so in verse 1 he says, There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbers not. They can say what they want to, but a day of reckoning is coming, and just because it's delayed doesn't mean it's not going to be there. And so they can slumber. You could, you could act like God's slumbering. He's very much awake. He's very much present. He is not silent, and this is coming. Okay, so verse 4. And then this is, this is going to get really fun, all right? Verse 4, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Okay, that's heavy. In verse 5, And He spared not the old world. He wiped it out. But, no, but save Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And... This is just going from, from, from happy to happier here, all right? <laughs> Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed the, uh, who was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Let's pray today. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, our hearts are already full. Uh, Father, thank you that you died, that you rose again. You're coming back. And it's a promise. And Lord, that is something for us not to dread, to be, but to have great hope in our hearts for. And so, Lord, until the day that we're in your presence or that you return, I pray that you'd help us to be strong, as Peter was, to live for you, to have the kind of faith that this man had. And, and so, Lord, may, may these thoughts imprint, Lord, in our hearts, our minds, and in our intentions today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
In grammar, there is something called a protasis. Okay, for us non-English nerds, let me define what a protasis is. It's the clause containing the, condi containing the condition in a conditional sentence. So what's a conditional sentence? Conditional sentences are natural language sentences that express one, that one thing is contingent upon something else. Did I already lose you? Yeah, you're just like looking at me. There's a few of you that are smiling, and, and I know, we all know who you are, because you're like, you're like, yeah, he's speaking my love language, and I'm not, all right? I'm just trying to help us understand the truth this morning. It was a, some English nerds out there, Julie Gardner knows who she is. All right. Okay, let me, just, let me just start over. Let's just pretend like I ended the sermon in prayer, and we'll go back to it, all right? In grammar, there's a protasis. Okay, so protasis is the clause containing the condition in a conditional sentence. So that's what the protasis is, part of that sentence. In a natural language sentence, the protasis is, is, is the conditional sentence is one thing that is contingent upon something else. All right, so let me give you an example. If it rains, the picnic will be canceled. Okay, we don't want the picnic to be canceled, right? We want to have the picnic. Okay, but I'm going to throw out a protasis there. If it rains, then it's going to have to be canceled. So if it rains is the protasis in the conditional sentence. Understand that? Everybody got it? Okay, now we're a little more educated on what a protasis might be. If it rains is clause one, okay? Clause two, the picnic will be what? I don't want it to be canceled, but it, it may have to be because of weather. All right. In verses four through nine, Paul uses basically one continuing thought. And so he's got this big, long, drawn-out thought, and he puts this protasis at the very beginning of it. So this is, this, is a, this, is, this is significant for us to understand and to look at. So I want you to go back to verse 4 with me, and he says this. In, the, in verse 4, he says, if, he says 4, and then he says, if God. Okay? So that's the protasis, and then we look at verse 4. If God spared not the angels that sinned. Okay, verse 5, if is not there, but it's implied. And if he spared not the old world. Verse 6, and if turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them. And if he delivered just Lot. Okay, so here's the protasis. If God knows, how, if God can do that, if he can, then. Okay, here's the second part of the sentence. Then he can surely do this. Okay, so this is important for understanding because we read these verses sometimes we're like, wow, where's he going and what's he saying? Okay, so I'm going to try to simplify it for us this morning. Verse 4, if God can do this, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, if God can do these things, then verse 9. And verse 9 is what he's pointing to. That's where our attention is to be drawn. As we look at this passage, it's easy to get lost on all those other things but let's not lose track of verse 9. And here's the main point. Verse 9. If, if that's true, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of, pun, of, of judgment to be punished. So here he is, Peter, and he's using select Old Testament stories, things that have already taken place as his protasis to prove his point, which is found in verse 9, that God is going to deliver the godly. God is going to punish the unjust. It's going to happen. Mark it down. If God can do these things, 
He could certainly do this, and he is absolutely going to. So he presses this point really, really hard. And as the chapter progresses, and even in next week's sermon, as we get into verse 10 and following, he's just really drilling down on this particular thought. Why does he press so hard? And I, and I mentioned this last week in verse, in chapter 1, Paul's on offense. He's playing offense against the false teachers. But in, full, in, in, in chapter 2, this is full court press. This is, this is him playing complete offense, and he, is go, he was playing defense, I'm sorry, he's playing defense, and now he's playing offense against these false teachers. Okay, why is he doing this? Well, remember the background. The false teachers were teaching that you could live however you wanted to live, and that God's grace was big enough to cover you. Okay, that is true, but it's partially true. Because Paul and all the other writers of the the New Testament say, look, just because God's grace is so big, it's a reason to live right. It's a reason to understand he's a judge, that our actions will be held accountable, that we have opportunity to to, to do right. It's not a reason to do wrong, but they they were changing the truth. They wanted to live how they wanted to live. And so they're taking the Bible, they're twisting it, and their message sounded true. He said it was pernicious, it was subtle. And it sounded right, but they interjected some of their own ideas into the gospel to justify and to do what they wanted to do. And many people believed them, and they began to follow them. And from the outside, it looked like the people following the false teachers and this idea of grace, it looked like they were happier, and they looked better off, and they're having a party, and I'm trying to do right. And, and, and I kind of want to, like, I like what they're preaching better than what, what Peter's preaching. I mean, Peter's kind of dogmatic, and he's a little angry, you know, and he, he's about to die. I don't want to die. I'd rather follow those guys because they're happier and better off. Okay, let me ask you a question this morning. If you saw other Christians living however they wanted to live, and it wasn't just that they were living how they wanted to live, they looked like they were having a good time doing it. They're having a great life. And you're trying hard to serve God. And you're making sacrifices. And your life doesn't appear to be as good as theirs is. Would that bother you? Okay, let me reframe the question. Has it ever bothered you? Okay, on a much greater scale, because, because of, of, of the tension from the outside world, That's what these people are experiencing. And this is where Peter's readers found themselves. And and Peter's trying to encourage them. Don't get so frustrated. Don't get so discouraged at resisting false teachers. Don't get so, so upset at those who live outside the boundaries of God's design. Well, why? Because God is both a judge and God is a deliverer. He is both. He does both. And, and you're going to be judged by him or delivered by him. And so you have to make a choice here. And we need to be guarded about our interactions. Okay, so now he uses three negative examples and two positive examples to prove his point from, from the text this morning that we just read. All right, before I get into them, let me offer a caveat, or several of them. His examples would have been well known to his listeners, and they are not as well known to us today. Now, we're, we're familiar with these stories, but to these people, they would have talked about these and had an intimacy with them that we, we just don't have today. They had a lot of oral and written history that contextualized these principles that were available to them that 
quite frankly, aren't available to us today. So we have what we need to have, but they would have meant something different to these people in a, in a, in a very keen, intense way. Okay. These examples, especially the first one in verse 4 about sinning angels, may not be easy to understand, and not every theologian agrees on what this verse is referencing. So we just have to understand that. Most important, these examples, and this is where we have to frame our understanding, they're illustrations that point to the truth of verse 9. So I, I, I want to preach them, and I'm going to preach them, but I don't want us to get hung up on them. Because Peter is simply stating these just like Jesus did in the Gospels. He, he stated these same, used many of these same references to point to a truth. Jude used them as well in other places in the Gospel. They were used to illustrate a truth. And the truth is what I want to focus our time on this morning, the Lord willing. Okay, so first three negative examples that illustrate Peter's point that God is a judge. He is a judge. And he says in verse 4, If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Okay, so he's, he's still in the pretasis part of his statement here. And if God did this, well, what exactly did God do? All right, so more than the other examples, this one has a lot of opinion surrounding it. And I found four different ideas specifically that relate to this story. And we can, again, agree to disagree, but let's not lose the point here. Let me offer, though, a few ideas that help direct our thinking related to these sinning angels. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there an unambiguous reference to God's judgment on angels. So in Isaiah and Ezekiel, they reference the fall of Satan and disobedient angels. But the most likely background for this particular story or this illustration that Peter is using is probably found in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. So the Jewish people would have used a book called the Book of Enoch. And there were three books to the Book of Enoch. Um, it's not part of the Bible. So if you think, I've never heard that one in the Bible. It's not there. It would have been a history book that many of them referenced. In the Book of Enoch, though, there's a lot of explanation of Genesis and this fall of the angels. And Enoch gives a lot of, of color to that passage. Um, I believe that what Peter is referencing indeed is Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in the pre-flood world. Four years ago, pastor preached a message from, from this text that I actually re-listened to this week as I was, you know, gearing up and preparing myself for this message. And if you're interested in that, we can help make that available to you. I'm not going to go into all the reasons why. I think this is the story that Peter had in mind. But I do think that that's what he had in mind. I believe that the sons of gods are angels who cohabitated with women and was one of the primary reasons why God judged the world in Noah's day. Jude speaks to this as well. Just to the right, a few, a few pages, Jude, the book of Jude, in verse 6, he says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, they didn't keep their design or their place, left their own habitation, and hath he hath reserved an everlasting change unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. So again, a reference to that. Okay, the point is, God took these sinning angels, and He, what Peter says in English, He sent them to hell. All right, this is where this gets fascinating, and I typed all this up, and I deleted it all. If you want to have a conversation about this later, it's great, it's fun, fun stuff, but it, I don't know that it means anything to us in terms of application. But in the Greek, the word for hell here is Tartarus. 
and I probably went too deep in my study this week, um, but there are three ideas behind that, and the first is simply this, that this place, this word specifically, it was from Greek mythology. So the, the idea behind that opinion is that God took these angels and, he, and, and, and Peter's saying he sent them to hell, but he's using this word Tartarus to explain to the people in a contextual way like, like, hey, let me help you understand what this place is. It would be like Tartarus, okay? So he sent them to this place. So in our vernacular today, I might stand up and I might use, if I was speaking to you, um, a word from the Marvel Universe. Um, you know, whatever that would be. It's a really bad place from Marvel. Or, or I know from Lord of the Rings, like um, Mordor, right? So I might use that word to describe where God sent them. It helps us understand what kind of place they were sent to, okay? There are some theologians that say, well, it wasn't even a real place, and it was just an imaginary place. And then there's others that say, this is a real place. Okay, I believe it's a real place, and I believe that God sent them there. And it's not a final destination. God placed these angels in a place where they are being held for judgment. Okay, the principle here, the overarching principle is this. It's a place of confinement and limited influence. Okay, so God said, nope, they were sinning so greatly. They came down, they, the, the, the sons of, of God, which would be these fallen angels, they were, they were intermarrying, producing children with the daughters of men. They were producing this offspring that was, that was the Nephtalim, and, and the world turned to wickedness, and God said, I'm, time out, we're starting over. I'm judging the world. Noah, build a boat and get in it, because I'm going to flood the world. And that was part of God's decision to wipe out all mankind. And he said, we're going to start this over. And he took those angels that did this, and he bound them in chains, and, 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 and they are reserved. Again, this is a temporary holding place until the final judgment day. And then he's going to fully judge them. Okay, so example number two, the flood. Again, we're back in the Protasis again. The sin of man was so great in Genesis 6 that God judged the world. And so following this commentary about these fallen angels... The Bible says that he saw the wickedness of man and that it was so great. It, it, it wasn't just that it was great. It was incomprehensible to us today. It was as wicked as wicked could be. There are a lot of wicked things in our world today, but nothing as wicked as what these men were doing and the, and the way that they were living. And in verse 5 it says, And every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And so he literally judges the world. He says, enough, I'm not going to put up with this any longer. And he rescued Noah. We're going to get to that in a second. But he judged the world and he wiped them out. So he binds these angels. He wipes out the world with a flood. And then this is example number three that Peter uses about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a terrible and dramatic story we find in Genesis 18 and 19. It is, without doubt, one of the grimmest tales in the Old Testament God said the city's wickedness is so great, I'm going to wipe them out. He warns Abraham about it, and Abraham intercedes between Lot and, 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 and God, and he says, God, would you please spare Lot? There's a long story, we won't go into it today, but Abraham intercedes and begs God not to destroy the cities for Lot's sake. But God says, no, I'm going to destroy the cities, and he spared Lot and his family, and he rained down, the Bible says, brimstone and fire on these two cities. And Peter says he burned them to ashes. God made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And again, the point of these examples, 
He's saying, if God judged those angels and God judged the world and God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, it is consistent with his character to judge unrighteousness. And we need to pay attention to that this morning. Because we are not just dealing with the loving God. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he's good. Yes, he's also a deliverer, but he's also a judge. And we need to keep that in mind. And so he says, if God knows and has done all of these things, then it's consistent with his character that he also knows how to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment and to be punished. You can live how you want to. You can think what you want to think. You can act the way you want to act. But recompense is coming. Reckoning day will be here. And Peter is begging these people, make that clear in your mind. No one gets off scot-free. God is a judge. His judgment came for the world. It came for these angels. It came for Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is coming for us one day. So, what about those that are trying really hard to live right and to honor God? Okay, so Peter gives us two examples of men who lived through really difficult times and did so righteously. Okay, example one is this. He says, Peter, or he says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In other words, here he was preaching a message of salvation, and the response to him was utter scorn, utter contempt. People turned off their ears. Don't want to hear that message. Don't want to listen to that. Don't tell us that. I, don't want, to, I, I want a different message. They mocked him. They laughed at him to their own judgment and their own harm and hurt. In spite of the trials, in spite of the opposition over hundreds of years, he listened to and obeyed God. And God makes it clear to us through Peter's pen that he rescued him. He pulled him out of that place. He justified his actions. He redeemed him. And then his second example here is Lot. When we read about Lot in the Old Testament, we get convinced of things like this. Lot is weak. Lot is compromising. Lot chose to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. He he, he chose to live there even though he knew it was a notoriously sinful place. He was rescued almost against his own will. You read the account. The angels had to drag him and his family out of there. And even when they drug them out of there, his wife still looked back over her shoulder and was still in that moment she herself was judged. But I want you to look at how Peter describes Lot. Look at verse 8. He says, For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. See, Peter says, well, Lot may have done all those things, but, but he was a righteous man. So let's define what righteousness is. Righteousness does not necessarily mean one's one innate moral virtue, but rather it means this, one's status before God. It's not necessarily that I would look at Lot and say, I want to emulate his, his way of living. No, there was a lot of weakness there. But Lot was righteous before God, and as he looked at the world in which he lived, it upset him. He was distressed in his heart. He, 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 he wasn't like the false teachers teaching it. He didn't join them. He resisted it. And God saw that in his heart. And he didn't participate in the sin. And he viewed it, and he was distressed by it. And so God rescues him because he was righteous. But not just because he was righteous the way we would view it, but he was righteous before God. 
and he was distressed at the rampant sin around him. And God rescued Noah. And a lot more could be said about each of these examples, and each of them deserve their own attention. But let me try to pull from them a few examples or a few principles that might help us this morning. Because again, this is the if part of the statement. So if God does all these things, then what is God going to do? And how is He going to interact with us? And I think there's this principle for us today that simply goes like this. If you do right, and if you live for God, you are going to experience trials in this life. Period. And that's important for us to understand today before we get to the second premise. If you do right, and you serve God, and you love Him, and you do your best to be faithful to church, and you give your tithes and your offerings, and you, and you, you witness, and you love Him, and you try to live a righteous, good life in a dark world, you are still, in spite of all your efforts, you are not going to escape trials and temptations, period. There is something in our hearts that wants to think we're going to have it easy in our marriages, we're going to have it easy with raising our kids, we're going to have it easy at our jobs, and we keep hoping that things will get better. But the Bible, unfortunately, suggests otherwise. Isn't this an encouraging sermon today, right? Okay, Peter just got tell done telling us, Noah had trials, Lot had trials, Jesus had trials, Peter, as he takes up his pen, knows he's about to die. Think he didn't have trials? Oh my goodness. He's about to be executed. Look, we don't have much to go on or to think differently, to hope, dif to hope different other than that. Acts 14.22 says, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. The New Testament is realistic about the difficulties and the afflictions that come from all sides that experience, ex believers will experience in this life. It's very clear. You read your Bible, and I'm not saying you, you, th there aren't good things about being a Christian and hopeful days and, and God's rescue and all that. That's all good and true and right. But we have to understand today that the New Testament is also very realistic that life is hard. And it's hard for a believer. And temptation and trials surround us on all sides. We tend to think of difficulties in the Christian life as the exception and not the norm. That life's supposed to be easier than it really is. But this type of expectation leads to disappointment, it leads to heartache, it leads to immaturity, and it leads to weak Christianity. And I will tell you, we struggle with that in our nation today. Weak, immature, disappointed Christianity. And it's ruining our future. Because of this type of thinking, some have a crisis of faith in which they begin to question God's plan, his love for them, and even his existence, and they just walk away. We have to have an expectation that God's word sets that in this life, as a believer, you can do everything right and still experience trial and temptation. Peter is matter of fact here. We need to shift our perspective and view trials as an expected part of the Christian life. You want to love God? You want to serve Him? Great! It's a wonderful thing. It's very rewarding. But you're going to have to go through some hard times. And when we have expectations other than that, we are set ourselves, setting ourselves up for failure and difficulty. But when we see these verses through the expectation that trials and difficulties are part of life, something awe-inspiring takes place in our hearts. 
Why? Because when trials come, God promises to be there with us and to ultimately deliver us from them. He is a judge and he's a deliverer. And deliverers look for people to deliver. In fact, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord look to and fro across the whole earth. What's he looking for? Maybe some of you noticed this morning, I, I don't know, but I came in the back doors and I was looking for my wife. I needed to ask her a question. And I'm looking to and fro across the whole auditorium. And then I discovered she was a sinner upstairs in the balcony, there by her, in the back row. <laughs> uh, looking to and fro. That's what God does. He's looking to and fro. What's he looking for? What you looking for, God? I'm looking for someone who's got a heart that loves me. Someone who's got a perfect heart that's just trying to do right. And I'm, I'm going to be there to strengthen them and to help them and to deliver them. That's what he's looking for. The flood destroyed the world and everyone in it. But God found and God rescued Noah. Here's this, here's this world full of people and animals. And God looks down and he's looking to and fro. And he found his man. And he delivered him. God looked down and he saw these massive cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's looking at them. And he's looking to and fro. And Abraham says, would you spare Lot? And he says, yep, I found him. And he's righteous. I'll, I'll deliver him. There will be trials in your life. But God's looking down. And he will find. And he will rescue you too. And then he promises to provide all you need so that you can emerge from that trial, from that difficulty, with your faith still intact and your salvation untouched. Amen. He promises that. Amen. This is what he says. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. If God can bind up the wicked and unjust and judge them, and he could find those, those just singular righteous men in that midst, then God knows how to deliver you. God knows how to take care of you and your problems and the difficulties that you face. The word temptations is literally here the idea, it's, it's the word trial or suffer, it's the idea of suffering that puts strength and faith to the test. It's I, I'm going through a difficulty and, and, and my strength is being tested. But not just my strength, my faith is being tested. And the Lord says, I'm going to come and I'm going to help you and we're going to get through this together. Temptations or trials include all the challenges that you might experience in your life. Will they bring physical harm? Well, was Peter about to die? So I think the answer is yes. Trials can bring physical harm, emotional stress, economic deprivation. But the New Testament continues, in fact, to give examples of those things. But God in His grace and His wisdom always provides a way out of these trials, meaning he will give to you the means to endure and to emerge spiritually stronger than you currently are. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, his other letter that he wrote preceding this one, he said, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? No, one can, no, one ha, no one's going to hurt you. I'm here. I'm protecting you. They've got to go through me through first. He even controls the demons as evident in verse 4 from harming you. You try to do good. You try to do right. Lord, I'm trying to serve you. And God says, okay, well, who can really hurt you? Because I'm here and I'll protect you and I will help you through. He won't 
lets you handle anything more than you're able to, and that's a promise from Him. Okay, so we have that established. But Peter's readers, like us today, can have faith in God, believe in Him, depend on Him to get them through the trials of life. Lord, I'm committed to this direction. No matter what comes, I'm going to walk with you. But, but God, I still have questions about justice, don't we? How come the lives of the good guys isn't better? Why do wicked people prosper when righteousness suffers? So that company is gearing up for Pride Month. God, we know that's an affront to you. That's part of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah that you wiped out. And they're so blessed. And my company's struggling. And we're not going to do Pride Month here. We're hurting. And why are you blessing them? And that social influencer, you're getting a lot of money from that. And, 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 and some of their posts are sin. And you're, they seem to be doing really good. And that celebrity or musician... Or, or that sport player that we may not know personally, but we look at them and we're just filled with envy. Like, wow, they've got it all. And if I could sing or dance or maybe even just listen to that music, maybe I could be more like to have that more of that kind of lifestyle. Maybe if I, had, if I pursued money the way that they did, I could be a happier, better person. And maybe it's people you know in your personal world that you look at. And to contextualize this, it's not just people who are lost, but those who are saved. Because that's the direct application of the text today. That guy's life, he's a Christian, he's in church, but he's not following God the way I'm trying to, and his life's better than mine. And it's not fair. So God, I might hold on and get to these trials, but that looks good and it's really tempting. In Psalms chapter 73, here was a man named Asaph, and he poured out his heart to God. And he was bemoaning the happiness and the success of the wicked. You look at their social media feed, boy, it is, they are on the beach, they're hanging out, they're happy, they've got the body, they've got the tunes, they got it all, and that's what I want. And they're blessed. In verse 3, in Psalm 73, Asaph said this, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. Verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world, and they increase in riches. And God, it's not fair. I want those things. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocency. God, I'm doing everything right. And they're not. And it's not fair. Okay. It's true. It's not fair when you're looking at life this way. Then he says, I went into the house of the Lord. And then he had a perspective shift. And he said, okay, let me look at these things from a different angle. Because once I went into God's house... And once I got around God's people, and once I got around God's word, all of a sudden my thinking began to change. So verse 17, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God, and then 
he says, I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with tears? Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with me, thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. What's he saying here? We need a perspective shift in life. And we, every time our thinking begins to reel out, we begin to get envious. And we look at those guys. We say, life's easier for them. I want that. God says, hold on a second. Time out. Come back to the house of God. Come back to God's word. Come back to God's people. Let's readjust our thinking about what really matters. What's really at play here. That, that God's going to deliver you. And by inference, he's not going to deliver them from those actions. That, that, that's a slippery slope. And it leads to a dark and bad place. And so Peter's answer is the same as Asaph's, and, and it's the same as the Lord's, and it's simply this. God sees. God knows. God's present. And He ain't silent. And so in ways we see, and ways we have yet to see, God holds, and God will hold, a people accountable for their actions. He will hold people accountable for their actions in ways that we observably see, if we have the eyes to, and in ways right now we cannot see, because that day is still coming. He is a judge. There are terrible consequences now for sin, both mentally and physically. And it is as if Peter is encouraging his readers to look past the surface, because pictures are surface. And laughter is surface. And big smiles can be phony. And he's saying, look beyond the superficial happiness. Look beyond the dollar signs and what the bank account communicates to you. Get past your envy and see within that person the inner anxiety. See the despair. See the, dis- the, the, the frustration and the dysfunction that lurk below the surface of their life. And it's there. Sin leads to those things. It, they aren't as happy as you think they are. And you need to understand and have faith in God that He's caring for your heart and guiding and shepherding you in a way He is not doing for those people because they're not availing themselves to that. And there is true joy and true happiness and real sleep and real peace to be found in God. So look past that surface. There are consequences for sin now. But to Peter's point, even more than that, And we need to keep this in mind. There are terrible consequences coming for sin. The Lord is returning. He is going to hold all mankind accountable. God is both now judging sinners and will judge them. And we need to have the faith to understand that. We need to have the trust in Him. So what does all this mean to to us today? Well, God is going to judge you or God is going to deliver you And we all file into one of those two categories. So which are you going to choose? Is God going to be your God, your judge in life for your attitude? Your spirit? For your lack of generosity and lack of gratitude? Is God going to judge that in you? Your contentiousness? You don't love anybody. You don't care about them. You don't express it. You don't serve. Is God going to judge that in your heart? Is God going to judge 
the fact that you're not faithful in your finances to Him when He's asked you to be very clearly? Is God going to judge you, young people, for the things you're looking at on your phones? Is God going he, to... He, he is now judging. He will be judging. You can't escape it. If he did all of those things, mark it down, protasis clause, he will do this. He's a judge. We've got to clean up our hearts and our minds and our actions. He will be your judge or he'll be your deliverer. And life's hard. But I'm going to stay faithful, God, to my finances. And that person really upset me. I'm going to love them anyway. And I know there's a lot in life I don't have. But there's a lot in life I do have. And I can be generous. And I can be good. And I can be grateful. And I can be happy. And I can make the lives of those around me better by serving them with my attitude and my spirit and my actions. And He will deliver and help me through those hard times. Look, in all of us, there are areas of our hearts that God is judging or God's delivering for every single one of us. And sometimes in the same heart, at the same time, He's doing both. But which will it be for you? See, we don't get to choose whether or not to live in a sinful and dark world or not. That's not a choice you get to make that was made for us. You, get, you don't get to choose whether or not you will have trials. God's Word says you're going to have them. Relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every angle, all sides. What do you get to choose? Well, you get to choose how you will respond to sin in the world. And whether or not you will endure the trials that God brings your way. You can choose to be righteous and God will deliver you. Not from the trial, but in the trial. Or you could choose to be unrighteous to God and He will judge you. Today and someday. So the challenge for you this morning is this thought. Don't live life in such a way that you invite God's judgment on you. If He could be my judge or He could be my deliverer, I'd much rather have a deliverer. That's where our hearts need to go. Don't force God's hand to judge you. Instead, give Him opportunity to deliver you in the way you yield your heart to Him and in the way you live your life.